Nation. Providing you with the practical tools and expert knowledge to optimize your strength, health, and mindset inside and out. With your host, Steve Katarzy. So, so excited to say that I've got this guy on for the second time. We've got Vin Diesel, guys. Yeah, Vin Diesel. Okay, not exactly Vin Diesel. We've got Christian Fibordo, but I'm telling you, he is his doppelganger. Go check him out online. Now, the reason we have Christian on the podcast today is we spoke on episode 65 about neurotyping. What is neurotyping? What are the five neurotypes? How to identify with them? And how to think about your training as a result of your neurotype. And it was so popular. It is one of the most top-ranking episodes of all time for us. And it continues to be really popular. That we thought we'd double-click into a aspect of that discussion that didn't get a lot of attention. And that was nutrition. So neurotyping can help guide how we think about our personality, how we think about our training, and more importantly, how we think about nutrition, because nutrition can have both an impact and can be impacted by your neurotype. So that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today, guys. And I will give you a word of caution, though. I mean, it is really technical, but trust me, you don't need any special degree to understand what Christian says. You just need to pay attention. He talks about neurological and biochemical stuff, but he makes it very practical, very real world, and you will be able to use the information he's given you with practical real world changes in your diet. So get a pen and paper ready and get ready to be amazed and dumbfounded by just how much wisdom you'll be able to garner in the next hour and a half. Now to get an insight into what we talk about I'm actually going to say, just go check out the show notes, guys. I've got everything noted there. But in a nutshell, this is a deep dive into the neurotransmitters for each of the neurotypes and then the nutritional pieces you need to know of, both in terms of the molecules and the precursors and the foods that are going to drive up or down the performance of your neurotype. But not just that. We've got some really cool extras as well. I mean, Christian is just a fountain of knowledge. So he just casually drops some profound information as it relates to cortisol production, the benefits of fasting, how keto can be amazing for some people and rubbish for others. He talks about strength loss when you're dieting and why that happens specifically on the bench press. And he also talks about the truth of muscle loss or retention when you are cutting. I mean, guys, you just won't get an episode this packed full of knowledge in a long time. I hope you enjoy it. And let me know, as always, if you had any feedback or questions. Oh, guys, I am so happy to welcome back Christian Fibaldo to this podcast. If you don't recall, we had an episode together a couple of months back, episode 65 on a deep introduction to neurotyping. And it has become the second most listened podcast of all time for the Adaptation podcast. Pipped to the post just by a smidge by Brett Contreras, but maybe we can uh, <laughs> we can take yeah. the reins this time. Um, it's had numerous comments and re really positive feedback from our crowd. 
both Christian as a speaker and the topic itself. And, and I think this is such a great testament to Christian's work. I went on a cut very soon afterwards, and I, I just wanted to lose some kind of bulk fat that I'd accumulated. I lost 14 pounds in five weeks, which was the plan. I'd done it to the day. I'd done it without emotion, without drama. I performed well. I was happy. And it was all because of the principles that hopefully we're going to air today as it relates to nutritional guidance um, in accordance to your neurotype. So listen, you're going to love this episode, I'm sure. Welcome back, Christian. Thank you so much for giving us time to get into a part two. Well, not nice to be back and congrats on the quick fat loss, especially since it was like without drama and maintaining your performance level. That's awesome. It, it was, yeah, it was incredible. And I'm sure we'll kind of dip into that um, a couple of times throughout the show. But yeah, it was, it was transformative. It completely changed my perspective on cutting based on some of the guidance you guys have shared. So what I'm hoping we'll do, um, actually, what I'll do just quickly um, before passing the mic over is I'll give a quick high level recap for you and I, as well as the audience in terms of what we discussed in episode 65. So what you covered off was what are the key transmitters that drive neurotransmitters that drive behavior? The idea behind neurotransmitter dominance, we spoke about the chemical differences between the five neurotypes. Uh, we discussed how each of the neurotypes show up in life, both socially from a performance perspective, stress levels, training, leadership, etc. And then we kind of spent the last bit talking about training preferences for each of the neurotype to get the greatest motivation and fastest recovery. And then we finished on understanding how to train for modalities that don't match your neurotype and how to do that successfully. We also briefly touched on nutrition. If, if I recall, it was something to do with glutamate rich foods and how it's making people overly emotionally sensitive based on its kind of uh, regulation of the inhibitory neurotransmitter GABA. But we didn't get into any nutritional needs and guidance. And I'm hoping that's what we can do today, if that's all right with you, Christian. Absolutely. I think it's a, if I want to beat Brett Contreras, uh, we need to talk about nutrition. <laughs> I think that <laughs> glutes and nutrition is where it's at. If you can <laughs> just weave a couple of glute anecdotes into the discussion, I think we're going to be going. I have no glutes, man. I have literally zero glutes. I, I'm quad dominance to the core. <laughs> so I'm the last person to get advice from for biceps and glutes. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Okay. We'll, we'll I can let you with bench press. That's pretty much it. <laughs> bench press, squat, that, that's my forte. But glutes and biceps, for some reason, they are non-existent on me. Well, luckily, we're, we're, we're not going to go there today. But before, <laughs> before we do go there, I'm curious, and I think the audience are too, you're a new father. Um, mm -hmm. so tell us about your experience, just at a high level. How old is your child right now? Uh, it's seven months old. Seven months old. What's his name? Jaden. Okay. And what's what's going on with him right now? Is he is he are you enjoying the experience? Is he kind of Absolutely. helping you grow and learn in different ways he didn't expect? Well, he, he's got much better motor skills than I do. That's for sure. I think he, he's taking off from his mother in that regard. She's a former gymnast, and she uh, she can not lift for a year, and she'll be power cleaning 165 pounds like from this from the start. So she has great motor coordination, and Jaden seems to be taken from his mother. He's he's learning quickly to move. He's uh he's already already doing the plank. So when I'm 
trading, he's trading also, which is awesome. <laughs> uh, and, and to be honest, thank God, he, he, he sleeps extremely well. He goes to bed at 6.30 every night and he wakes up at 6.30 in the morning, which is which is rare. He's been doing sense. that since he was three. Oh, absolutely. So I, I can't say it has affected my training that much because I get full night's sleep. And my wife's awesome also. So, but uh, with the home gym setup, uh, I, I just can do like 25 quick workouts and I, uh, 25 minutes quick workouts. And I do that several times during the day so I can like balance my chores, my, uh, my work on your typing, on, on building seminars, on coaching clients and, and being a father. So it, it's been nothing but positive so far. Now the real test is going to be, uh, next week we're, we're going to be traveling, uh, to Australia. So uh, like 12 hour, uh, time zone difference. Uh, oh, so wow. it's going to be a really, really, really big challenge. So that's where we're going to know if he's a great baby or it's just an illusion. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we traveled to Australia last year. I've got two daughters, one's six and nine. So they were a year younger. Um, that I, you know what? I think the, the best thing you can do is just have your kids be well-traveled generally, just get them on the plane yeah. often and, and young mm -hmm. because you know, they'd been on the plane a few times and it was a breeze. I mean, it was a long flight, two flights from the UK to Australia, uh, to East Coast and then West Coast. But they just, you know, stick some good telly in front of them, give them, the, you know, the coloring in books, make sure they're fed, give them an opportunity to sleep. They were fine. So um, hopefully you have a similar experience, man. Cool. Let's get into it then. So um, right. how do you want to handle this? So I've got a few ideas in terms of the things I'm intrigued about, but <laughs> at a high level, I'd love yeah. us just, just to explore why nutrition is important in the first place when it comes to neurotyping and then how we can think about giving people guidance. Well, I think that, you know, last time we talked about training and I think that the neurotype affects what kind of training you can be doing optimally, be more motivated by and stuff like that. But nutrition can actually enhance your, your own neurotype, make you a better version of yourself. It can also destroy you because your, your, your brain chemicals are highly influenced by what you eat. Uh, for example, dopamine and serotonin, depending on the ratio of carbs uh, to protein, uh, you can favor the absorption of tyrosine, which will lead to higher dopamine, or you can absorb more or, and transport more tryptophan, which will favor serotonin. So you can actually increase dopamine or increase serotonin more depending on what you're eating. Similarly, if you have a very high glycemic diet, for example, the brain will produce more GABA. Uh, more, more glutamate. So you're going to have a higher glutamate to GABA ratio, which will also change your neurotype. So nutrition and to some extent supplementation can actually enhance or uh, make your neurotype worse depending on what you're eating. So with the training, it's more a matter of finding out what works best for your neurotype. With nutrition is what can I eat to become the best version of myself and, and handling stress better and stuff like that. Uh, and of course, making uh, fat loss painless because if you feel better in your brain, if you feel more happy, if you feel content, it's going to be much easier to follow a stricter diet, for example. And also, uh, depending on what you're eating, you can change whether you are activating your brain or inhibiting your brain. So if you're someone who needs to get amped up to perform, to increase dopamine, you're going to be able to, you're going to have to eat a certain way. If you need on the opposite end of the spectrum to decrease anxiety you're going to need to eat a different way so so i would say that nutrition and supplementation are even more connected to neurotyping than training because of the i guess the, the chemical 
conversions that occur from what you eat and then how, how that's then leveraged throughout your body and then into your brain. Okay. Absolutely. So when we think about the, the five neurotypes, one, mm. 1B, 2A, 2B, and 3, yeah. um, do you want to just quickly cover off what the neurotransmitter makeup is, just, yeah. just quickly bet between sure. all five, and then maybe we can start with 1A in terms of some of the kind of precursor molecules that we need to think yeah. about for managing those neurotransmitters? Absolutely. Well, you have uh, the, the types 1, which are 1A and 1B, both have in common a very high sensitivity to dopamine, which means that they have a very effective dopaminergic system, but they don't produce a lot of dopamine. Their system is effective simply because they respond very strongly to dopamine. So at the moment they have a little bit of dopamine increase, they have a huge response, uh, which is why these people are very competitive, very driven, because they seek to, to release dopamine. And dopamine is released when you have a pleasurable sensation, when you win a competition, when you win an argument, when, when you have sex, stuff like that. So, so they, they, they become addicted to anything that makes them feel good because they have such a strong response to dopamine. Mm -hmm. Now, both the, the 1A and 1B have some differences also, which is why they, they are not the same way when it comes to behavior. The 1A is a lot more bossy than being a leader. He needs to be in charge. He has zero empathy. He's willing to do anything to win and he can't change his behavior. Whereas the 1B is more of a leader than a boss. He leads by example. He wants everybody to get along. Uh, he's great at being a mediator and he can adapt to various situations and has a little bit more empathy. The, now, the reason why you have two very different personalities, even though they are dopamine dominant and both are very competitive, both are very confident because of that, is the difference between uh, mostly their serotonin and acetylcholine levels. Now, the, the 1A has lower serotonin but higher GABA. So they, they both have a high level of inhibitors, but the 1A has a high GABA level and a moderate to lower serotonin level. And in turn, that leads to higher adrenaline level. Here's a little tidbit you guys need to understand. How much adrenaline is being produced is dependent on your dopamine to serotonin ratio. If you're very effective dopaminergic-wise, but have low serotonin, the body feels out of balance. The dopaminergic system is too strong for your serotonin, and as a result, the body will try to decrease dopamine by increasing adrenaline, okay? Mm -hmm. Dopamine is the building block from adrenaline, and the body tries to have the dopaminergic and serotoninergic systems equal or balanced. So when serotonin is too low, the body will dump dopamine to create adrenaline to rebalance both neurotransmitters, which is, uh, so, so the 1B has higher serotonin and more moderate GABA, the 1A low serotonin. So the 1A creates a lot more adrenaline, which makes them a little bit more impatient, uh, more uh, bossy, uh, more aggressive, seeking conflict. Then that's all because of the conversion of, of adrenaline. If you, like, if you look at the type 2A who are very sensitive to adrenaline, when they are in a high adrenaline situation, they become a lot like the 1B or the 1A. When I give a seminar, I actually become a 1A when I'm presenting because of the adrenaline response. I'm becoming arrogant. I become very confident, very driven, demonstrative, aggressive because of the adrenaline. Now, the second difference between the 1A and the 1B is the amount of acetylcholine. 
Acetylcholine uh, increases the speed of transmission in your brain, making all the other neurotransmitters better, improving memory and also improving the capacity to learn by looking at someone by, by modelization, uh, increasing coordination, increasing recall of stored memories, uh, which makes them capable of quote unquote multitasking, even though it's not really multitasking, it's just giving the illusion because they can do many things, uh, they can do two things and switch very rapidly from one to the other because of the speed of transmission in the brain. So these are the two main differences between the 1A and the 1B. So they both are confident, they both are driven, they both are impatient because of the dopamine dominance. But the 1A is like black or white. He can't change his behavior. He's on or off. He is more aggressive. He needs to impose himself. Whereas the 1B has a bit more empathy. Uh, he can adopt, adjust his behavior depending on the situation of the person, has better memory and better motor control. So that's for the type 1A and is 1B. It, and, and sorry, apologies. Yep. The acetylcholine that you de yep. described. Yeah. What's the difference between 1A and 1B? Who's got more than the other? Yeah, yeah. The, the 1A has low acetylcholine and the 1B has high acetylcholine, which, which, was, which is why most of the highly skilled athletes, the athletes who learn movement very easily, who can be good at pretty much every sport they try, learn new movement quickly, very good stretch reflex, very explosive, uh, capable of multitasking, very creative on the field. That's all dependent on acetylcholine. So that's why if you look at two players, let's say either a hockey player, rugby player, uh, basketball player, soccer player, football player, uh, the, the, the type 1A would be more of a brute force athlete. They follow the system. They don't diverge from the system, but they are willing to like use brute force and intimidation to win. Whereas the 1B is a lot more creative. Oftentimes, these players are, are seen as uncoachable because they don't follow the system. They create new solution in their brain. Creativity is the number one most important thing for talent. What we call natural talent or skills is a combination of motor control and creativity. And acetylcholine has a big role in both. So that's why the athletes with the bigger skill set, the better skill set have high acetylcholine because it's involved in memory, it's involved in recall, speed of transmission in the brain, and taking uh, stored information to create new solutions. Uh, so acetylcholine is what differentiate like the grinders from the skill athletes, for example. Okay. And acetylcholine um, is present, obviously, in, in, in everyone. Um, yeah, but they're between the one A and one B. One B has more, therefore yep. they're they're more uh, they're more likely to be skilled athletes if that they're that athletes, inclined. But quick motor learning, they can when it comes to training, they can change their exercises a lot more often because they have good transfer from right. one exercise to the other. The more acetylcholine you have, the better the transfer you have. Normally, the, the, the 1B and the 2A are those who tend to have the highest level of acetylcholine. Got it. Great transition to 2A and 2B then. Let's, yep. let's cover off those in terms of dominance and inhibitory uh, neurotransmitters yep. as well. Well, well the, the 2A, 2A and 2B both are somewhat similar in that they have a lower level of natural self-esteem. Now, I'm not talking about a self-esteem issue that comes from having a bad childhood or something like that. I had a great childhood and my parents were awesome. Uh, I mean, my, we had money, I had friends, I was good at sports. 
I was good in school, but I still had low self-esteem. From the day I was born, it seems that I always had low self-esteem. So that comes from my own neurotype. The 2A uh, is mostly what we call adrenaline dominant. They, they respond very strongly to adrenaline, meaning that they don't have a lot of adrenaline, but their receptors are super sensitive to it. There's a distinction, okay? A, a, a neurotransmitter system can be effective and can be affected by four variables. The first one is the amount of a neurotransmitter being produced. The second one is the sensitivity of the receptors, how strongly you respond to it. Normally, when we talk about the excitatory neurotransmitters, the neurotransmitters that amp your brain up, dopamine, adrenaline, and to some extent glutamate, it's the sensitivity. That's the most important. When we talk about GABA, serotonin, and acetylcholine, it's mostly the amount that is mm. the driving force of the efficacy of the, of the system. Then the other two variables involved in how effective uh, a neurotransmitter system is, is the rate of degradation. When you release a neurotransmitter uh, from one neuron to the other to send a signal, some of it will be degraded by enzymes. And the more you degrade, the less neurotransmitter you're going to have to do its job because they get degraded before they can send a signal to the next neuron. And then the last factor is the rate of reuptake. When you release Okay, what happened, you communicate from neuron to neuron with neurotransmitters, and there's a space between both neurons. When you release a neurotransmitter in that space, it's called a postsynaptic gap. You can either make it all the way through and connect to the receptors of the next neuron, or you can degrade it by enzymes in that gap, or you can reuptake uh, retake that neurotransmitter in the uh, uh, neuron of origin. So before it can make it to the, the, the next one, it goes back to the preceding one. So if you have a high rate of degradation or, or reuptake, then the neurotransmitter can't do their job, which is why when someone is depressed, they give them serotonin reuptake inhibitors. They prevent serotonin from being retransported into the neuron before it could send a message to the next one. Got it. Anyway, so when it comes to adrenaline and dopamine, sensitivity is the key thing. So me, I'm adrenaline super sensitive. So when I'm at rest, I produce zero adrenaline because I don't have a, a large production capacity. So I'm lazy. I procrastinate a lot. Uh, I have low self-esteem, no confidence, no drive. As soon as I have a little bit of adrenaline release, boom, I morph into the alpha version of myself. Like, for example, I will always build my seminar like five days before presenting. And I'm talking about like 200 slides presentation here. I know three months in advance I'm going to be presenting, but I will always do it last minute because I need that adrenaline boost, that stress to get me amped up. And there is the thing, right? Adrenaline is indeed related to stress because cortisol, the stress hormone, is what increases the enzyme responsible from taking no adrenaline to create adrenaline. So that, that, that what's important to remember out of this is that every time you produce adrenaline, you produce cortisol beforehand. They go together, right? right. So back to the 2A. The 2A is adrenaline sensitive 
And normally, it has a fairly equal amount of all the other neurotransmitters, GABA, serotonin, acetylcholine, dopamine, glutamate. It's all moderate which is why the 2A, their main characteristic is their great capacity to change their behavior depending on the situation and person. They can adapt to anybody. I will always modulate my personality depending on the person I'm talking to because a 2A can pretend to be anybody because he has the brain chemicals to fake any type of personality. Um, which is why the, 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 the type 2A is often seen also as a mimicker. They, 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 they change the way they behave depending on the situation. Uh, just, an, that, just an anecdote there. And I don't know whether you, you've, you've drawn this, uh, the, this connection, but my wife, uh, I think the last time we spoke, we said she's yeah. a 2A but can sometimes come across uh, as, a, as a 1B. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, she's great at you know, being a social chameleon, connecting with people, yeah. um, adapting to who's around her to the point she's also a great um impersonator and she can pick up accents yep. fantastically well i can't pick up accents for shit like literally i'll try and do a scottish accent it sounds indian i try and do an american accent <laughs> it sounds completely bizarre i can't do it but she yeah. she can just hear it once and it sounds perfect do, have you the, ever the have you ever seen that kind of correlation between you know, people doing accents and impersonations and being a 2 eight? Not, not just accents, but two A's normally are the best actors. That's why oftentimes we think of actors as these people with a big ego or very confident. But in reality, most actors are, are insecure. They have low self-esteem. And what happens is, okay, me personally, uh, I'm going to use myself as an example because I'm a type 2A. We have naturally low level of self-esteem because our adrenaline level is low at baseline. Uh, so we have low level of self-esteem. The 2B also has low self-esteem, but they use a different strategy than us because they don't have that, 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 that chemical uh, toolbox to change their behavior. They will be, uh, they will use a, a, a different strategy that I will cover in a few moments. But the type 2A, they need other people to like them, to feel good about themselves. So from a very early age, they learn to change their behavior to what they think the person in front of them wants to hear. So they became great at creating personas. And that gives them the foundation to be a good actor. Most actors, like Robin Williams comes to mind, will have low level of self-esteem. They rarely are super happy, but they become great at creating personas, which make them mm. great actors. And that's why oftentimes you'll be surprised to know that actors, when they are just in like day-to-day -day life, they are actually very introverted. Whereas when they become an, that actor personality, they can become extroverted, they become very demonstrative. So that, that's, that, that's the 2A. They are normally either the best actors. And, and, just, can and, and just from a, a neurotransmitter perspective, so they are yeah. adrenaline dominant. Yeah. Um, what's their, their GABA serotonin status as well as acetylcholine? There will, there will be a lot of variation. Uh, normally a type 2A has a moderate level of pretty much all the neurotransmitter. That is when they are in their optimum state. Uh, however, that, that's why, by, by the way, when we do a testing for the neurotype, the 2A will look at characteristics of the five types and will often think, oh, I'm a 2A. Oh, I'm a 1B. Oh, I'm a 2B. Oh, I'm a type 3. Oh, I'm a 1A. Because they see themselves in pretty much every type because they've been that 
for a while at, at some point in their life. Now, what happens is that the 2A is the neurotype that is the most affected behavior-wise by stress level. They have the biggest change in personality when they are stressed or when they are amped up. When I'm in a situation where I'm uh, I, I adrenaline, very competitive state, uh, low stress, I can become a 1B or a 1A. But under a high stress situation, I will deplete my GABA. Uh, so I become a type 2B. So the type, the type 2A will be greatly affected by stress. So that's why you can have a 2A for a while. You're, you can swear to God he's a type 2B because he depleted his GABA. Because mm -hmm. since you have a moderate amount of all the neurotransmitters, it doesn't take much to decrease it enough to go toward a certain neurotype. And if you continue depleting it, a 2A can even become a type 3, which happens to me when I'm dieting down for a photo shoot, for example. Uh, I will have my, or I will start at 2A. I, I, I need variation in my training. I'm extroverted. I'm fun to be around. After six weeks, I become a 2B. I take everything personal. I don't want to take risks in the gym. Uh, I'm all about the mind-muscle connection. And if I die down for 12 weeks, I become a type 3. I want to do everything according to a schedule. I want zero variation. Uh, I, I want to eat always at the same time. If you, you change plan suddenly, it completely destroy my, my, my mindset. Uh, my, so depending on stress levels, the type 2A are those who can have the greatest variation in behavior uh, because they have a moderate amount of everything. So it's very easy to decrease it enough so that it becomes deficient. If I supplement to increase my dopamine, for example, I become 1B. I become calm. If I, I'm under stress, it takes two days and I become introverted, I become routine-based, I don't want to train with high force. It, it changes really rapidly, that's, that's a 2A, they can change very rapidly. It's, they are always in flux behavior-wise because of their, uh, their moderate amount of everything. Okay, makes sense. Yeah, the, the 2B is mostly very high glutamate. His main characteristic is a high amount of glutamate and a low level of GABA. In fact, when you have high glutamate, automatically you have low GABA because glutamate is transformed into GABA by, by the glutamic acid decarboxylase enzyme. So if you accumulate tons of GABA, it's because you cannot convert it efficiently into GABA or you overproduce it. But very rarely, you cannot have high GABA and high glutamate at the same time. So, so people, the, the two Bs will, because of the high GABA, they will be very emotional. The, the, the glutamate enhances every feeling. It's an emotional amplifier. So the more glutamate you have, the stronger your feelings are, both positive and negative. So a type 2B can go from extreme joy to extreme sadness in a matter of hours without anything significant happening in between. They, they also become quickly addicted to anything that makes them feel good because feeling good is multiplied by a factor of maybe five or six because of the high glutamate. Uh, they, they also have low GABA, which means that they're going to oftentimes have a hard time sleeping. They will often wake up several times during the night. 
Uh, they will have free, more frequent urination during the day. Uh, they tend to create scenarios in their head, and those scenarios actually have an emotional load to them. So it's not just a matter of they, they can't stop their brain from creating those scenarios. They actually feel like they're really happening. It's not uh, unusual for a type 2B to have a scenario in their mind involving a person and that person in their scenario does something bad to them and they will become pissed off at that person in real life because that, that emotion, their brain perceives it as real because of the emotional amplification from glutamate. Uh, they, they, they have a, a moderate amount of serotonin, which means that they are capable of, of adapting their behavior to various situations because the, the, the serotonin is a mood stabilizer. Both serotonin and GABA, their job is to calm the brain down or it's when it's amped up too much. But GABA is like the, the, the parking brake and serotonin the brake pedal. Serotonin modulates your behavior. It allows you to adapt to any situation seamlessly, whereas GABA, it's on or off. It, it's a parking brake. It's a safety brake. It just shuts down everything. So, so if you have problems falling asleep, if you have problems staying asleep, more often than not, it's a GABA issue, for example. Um, so the two Bs, they also have lower self-esteem. They also need other people to like them, respect them, to feel good about themselves, but they cannot change their behavior as easily as a 2A. So their strategy is to be the good guy. They will give you their sh the shirt off their back if that's going to help you so that you will like them. They are normally those who put the well-being of others before their own. They have the most empathy. But in reality, they are great people, not because they're great people, because they need others to like them. And that is the instinctive strategies they are using to get people to like them. So that's the type 2B. Got it. That makes perfect sense, man. And mm -hmm. let's hit Type three, before we get into some of the nutritional guidance that you've got. Yes, the, the type three is, is the no, normally the introvert, the, 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 the overthinker. They, they, while they're not always like mega introverted, although they always tend to prefer being on their own, but they, they need a structure to follow. They prefer to follow a plan. They are extremely organized. Uh, they, they, they need to know all the details. They make decisions based on facts not emotion. It takes them a long time to make a decision because they are weighting the pros and the cons all the time. Uh, these are all strategies to decrease the level of anxiety because the type 3 has the lowest level of the inhibitory neurotransmitter, GABA and serotonin, especially serotonin. Because of that very low serotonin, they, they, they have a hard time stabilizing their mood. So, so when things go out of whack, then their brain can go AWOL. It, it can just go on and on and overthink, overthink, overanalyze everything because I need to fix that situation. They are the least calm under pressure. Externally, they will be calm because they don't want to reveal information about themselves, but, but the brain is going on and on and on and on. They are overthinking. They can't shut their brain down. They often have a hard time sleeping because they can't shut their brain down. Now, because they have very low serotonin, it also means they have a high adrenaline. Because remember what I said earlier, when you have low serotonin, the body will transform more dopamine into adrenaline to maintain a balance between dopamine and serotonin. So, so a type 3 will often be uh, like also uh, very, not aggressive, but they, they have a hard time 
stopping their brain from going on and on because the adrenaline keeps speeding the brain up, speeding the brain up, speeding the brain up. And because of that, even though they are introverted, they tend not to have uh, a real self-esteem issue. They, they, don't, they, they don't have the exuberance or the outward confidence of a type 1A or 1B, but they normally, they don't need other people to tell them they're good, to, to, to feel good about themselves. They, in fact, they, they, they normally function pretty well in their own bubble because adrenaline being high pretty much all the time, they, they, they don't get that, that need. However, because adrenaline is always high, they can desensitize the adrenergic receptors and suffer from what we often call CNS fatigue, which is not CNS fatigue at all, it's just resistance of the adrenergic receptors. And when that happens, then they have low energy, low motivation, and just they don't function properly. So, so that's your type three. So it's mostly very low serotonin, low GABA, high adrenaline, um, low glutamate, uh, and moderate dopamine and acetylcholine can be all over the place depending on nutrition and depending on several other factors. And because of the kind of anxiety aspect, mm -hmm. um, is there is there an increase in cortisol generally speaking Absolutely. in these people? The, 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 the type uh, three are those who have the highest cortisol production, uh, which is why it, it's hard for them to build muscle. When, I, when I'm thinking about a traditional type three, I'm thinking about an accountant. I'm thinking about the marathon runner physique, like skinny fat physique, because they, they, they overproduce cortisol, which actually makes them pretty good in endurance activities. Because cortisol is first and foremost an energy mobilization hormone. So when you produce more cortisol, you actually mobilize fat and glucose much more easily uh, than someone who doesn't have a high cortisol level. Uh, look at, at the, the cyclists, for example. Cyclists, what, they, they often inject cortisol, not because they have inflammation, because cortisol acts a lot, a lot like cortisol uh, because it's a derivative. derivative and it will increase energy mobilization, increasing energy. So, so cortisol uh, will make them better suited for endurance activities, uh, but very hard to build muscle. First, because, well, we know that cortisol decreases uh, protein synthesis and increase protein degradation, protein breakdown, because your body is going to try to break down muscle to create energy from it. So cortisol makes it hard to build muscle because of that, but also for because of other factors. Uh, second thing is cortisol decreases the efficacy of the immune system the, because cortisol inhibits the immune system. Cortisol wants to make you ready to face a tiger right now. So when cortisol is high, you will divert all resources to what is needed to fight a tiger or run away from a tiger. And the immune system is not necessary while you're fighting. It's like in, in Star Trek. In Star Trek, when the crew is being attacked by an enemy, the captain will say, divert all energy to the deflector shields. Basically taking the energy that is sent to the replicators, that, that produces food, the holodeck that produces enjoyment, and taking all that energy, shutting that down so to have more, more energy for, for the shields. The body does the same thing. The immune system is not necessary while I'm fighting a tiger. Having stronger muscle, having more energy, thinking faster is a lot more important than having a, a strong immune system. What happens is when cortisol goes down after you kill the tiger, normally now the immune system goes back online to fix the damage created during the fight. So, so, but, but if 
your, your cortisol stays elevated all the time. Your immune system will stay down all the time. So you're, you're getting sick much more easily. But one thing that people don't know, repairing muscle damage is driven by the immune system. So if you have excess cortisol, you're going to have, have a really, really hard time repairing damaged muscle tissue. So if you want to grow muscle with a type 3, you need training methods that stimulate growth while minimizing muscle damage. Now, a, a, a third reason why cortisol decreases muscle mass is that cortisol increases the, uh, the protein myostatin. Myostatin is a myokine, a muscle protein being produced by the muscles, the more myostatin you produce, the less muscle you're going to build. Basically, see myostatin as a signal to stop building more muscle. So, that, for example, the Belgian blue is a breed of cattle that is born without the myostatin gene, and it just builds muscle on top of muscle on top of muscle. It looks like Ronnie Coleman. Hmm. Now, cortisol increases myostatin, decreasing your capacity to build muscle. So these are the three main reasons why someone with low serotonin is going to have a hard time building muscle. Uh, like That's why a type 3 who has a higher level of anxiety will have a higher level of cortisol because, remember, when adrenaline goes up, cortisol goes up. Because you have low serotonin, you produce, you, you, you transform more dopamine into adrenaline to maintain a stable dopamine to serotonin ratio. But to do that, you will increase cortisol to increase the enzyme responsible for, for producing adrenaline. So every time you produce adrenaline because of a stressful situation or simply because you have low serotonin, you're going to have an increase in cortisol. This is that. Absolutely fascinating, Christian. And it makes me kind of realize or ponder on the idea that our neurotypes uh, are a result of our lifestyle and our food, uh, mm -hmm. and maybe not the other way around. I, I mean, have you thought about that? Are, are we, are, as, as how we show up from a personality, from a bias perspective in terms of training and nutrition, is that a function of our lives today? in terms of the nutrition and our lifestyle, the level of stress, how we kind of manage situations? Or do you think the neurochemistry, the neuro neurotype is genetic, built in from day one, and therefore we should respect and observe its rules? I think that there is a genetic component. If you would have asked me that question, when I first developed the system, I would have told you it's mostly genetic. But the more I learn, the more I experiment, the more I work with clients, the more I realize that nutrition and lifestyle has a big impact. Now, uh, nutrition and uh, supplementation, well, mostly nutrition, won't have that much of a direct impact on receptor sensitivity, although it can still have a small element uh, of impact. Uh, mostly indirect, but it, it, it can play a role. However, nutrition and lifestyle will have a big, big impact on uh, the amount of neurotransmitters you produce. So, for example, if someone has a very high glycemic diet, so very high in carbohydrates, mostly simple uh, carbohydrates, the brain will increase the production of glutamate. And if that person is also deficient in vitamin B6, then they will have a hard time converting that glutamate into GABA. So even if the person is not meant to have high glutamate, because of the way they're eating, the glutamate becomes very high. And as we saw in the last podcast, it's the same thing if you're eating foods that are rich in glutamate. 
uh, like transform food, like a, a fast foods, commercial coffee, uh, stuff like that. You will also increase glutamate because it is included in the food to make you addicted to that food. Mm. So if you have a high glycemic diet and you eat lots of fast food, frozen meals, commercial coffee, even if you're not born to have high glutamate, then your glutamate is going to be super high. And if your, your nutrition is deficient in vitamin B6, you will just pile up more and more glutamate because you can't convert it to GABA. But there are, and I can give you examples for all the main neurotransmitters, uh, like dopamine. Dopamine can be increased if you have a higher protein ratio versus carbs. If you want to increase dopamine, you need to have a low carb meal. Uh, the body, okay, there, there are two main amino acids at play here, tyrosine and tryptophan. Tyrosine is the building block for dopamine. Tryptophan are the building, is the building block for serotonin. Now, they both compete for transport, for the transport to the brain. If your meal add more, uh, very low carbs, more proteins and fat, you will favor the absorption and transport of tyrosine, which will increase dopamine. If you have a lot more carbs, you will favor the transport of tryptophan, increasing serotonin more. So that if you need to increase dopamine, for example, if you are quote unquote dopamine sensitive, you, you, to, put, to be the best version of yourself, you need to increase dopamine, especially if you're training hard. So if you're training hard, if you have a lot of mentally demanding tasks to do, if you have uh, the need to speak in public, for example, then I would go proteins and fats until the event. Then after the event, you might want to go protein and carbs with higher carbs to calm the brain down, allowing you to relax. But if you are the other end of the spectrum, if you're a type three, you tend to overly excite the nervous system because you have low inhibitors and high adrenaline and high dopamine. So you actually need to decrease dopamine and increase serotonin to get back to that ratio. Keep in mind, a type three naturally has low serotonin. So when you have low serotonin, what happens? You produce more adrenaline to decrease dopamine. Remember, that's, that's super important. The serotonin to dopamine ratio is very important. The body wants to keep that in balance. If your serotonin is very low, you will convert that dopamine to adrenaline, and that comes at the expense of overproducing cortisol. So if by, with my nutrition, I can increase serotonin by adding more carbs, for example, lower fat, lower protein, I will increase my serotonin which will decrease the need to convert dopamine to adrenaline, which will decrease cortisol. So that's an example. Now, if you look at GABA, GABA, uh, you want to have food, you want to increase, uh, increase GABA. Well, taurine is the amino acid that is involved in the conversion from glutamate into GABA. Vitamin B6 is also very important. And ketone bodies also increase the efficacy of the enzyme responsible from, for converting glutamate into GABA. So if you have excess glutamate and low GABA, you want to consume foods that are rich in taurine, like liver, lamb, salmon, mackerel, shellfish, or the dark meat of chicken, for example. You also want to go with foods rich in vitamin B6. And if you go keto for a while, so if not, 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 not keto lifestyle, maybe keto for four to six weeks, ketones, ketone bodies, 
increase the conversion of glutamate into GABA. Taurine does that too, and vitamin B6 helps with the process. So if I, I find someone with excess glutamate and low GABA, I put them on a keto diet, they're gonna feel awesome because it will increase GABA, decrease glutamate, now they are in balance. That's why so many people, when they go keto, they feel absolutely amazing. They go from being anxious and not sleeping to being even killed and sleeping well. They go from having big mood swings to being really even and pretty much happy all the time. They go from taking everything personal to not uh, to, to letting things slide, so they are a lot more happy. Now they become preachers. I feel so great, I want you to feel great also. The fact is that it doesn't work like that for everybody. If you have excess glutamate, a keto diet, especially if your protein comes from foods rich in taurine and vitamin B6, it will make you feel great. But if you don't have that glutamate issue, you will not have that same issue with same same benefit from the keto diet. Because even though the, if the keto diet can increase GABA, it will also decrease serotonin. Remember, protein and fats favor tyrosine. Protein and carbs, especially carbs, favors serotonin. So keto diet, no carbs, you will produce a lot more dopamine, you have more raw material for adrenaline, you decrease glutamate, you will increase acetylcholine, but you decrease serotonin. So not everybody can do keto and feel great. Some people will get more anxious, will have more sleeping issues, more cravings, more depression-like symptoms, whereas other people will feel great. It, re it really depends on your brain chemistry. And I would expect that it, it, it's hard, right? Listening to this conversation is uh, so informative, but people need to pause it a few times, want to take yeah. notes, really understand who they right. are and identify with this. Um, the, 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 the quick consumption of this could be, why don't I just have more of everything? Because yeah. they're all they're all a value adrenaline, it just described adrenaline it adds value, I want more of that dopamine yeah. sounds good, I will have some more of that too. serotonin, yeah, I want to have more significance, more yeah. confidence, you know, I want to inhibit some of my brain <laughs> kind of overaction, you know, GABA sounds good too. Like, like it's easy to go, Oh, maybe I just need to eat loads of these molecules mm. or foods containing these molecules and amino acids, because I want all of those. Yeah, it, it's easy when it comes to supplementation for people to think that way. Mm -hmm. But would you err on the side of caution and say, actually, depending on your yeah. neurotype, there's certain things you actually want to avoid or be very careful on over-consuming. Well, it, it's, all, it's, all, it's all about balance. It, ideally, your neurotransmitters would be, you would have no deficiency, but no excess either, because just, again, just look at dopamine serotonin. Uh, if, ser if dopamine is too high, then it will just be converted to adrenaline. And even though adrenaline sounds nice because it gives you energy, confidence, drive, if you produce too much of it, it comes at a cost. First, every time you produce adrenaline, you produce cortisol, which is bad. Second, the adrenaline is like the NOS in your car, which is actually pretty funny because you know, I've been being I've been told that I look like Vin Diesel for like 15 you do. years. <laughs> <laughs> so when I presented in Utah, I was in front of the crowd and say, like, you know, adrenaline is like the NOS in your car. Like, people started laughing. I couldn't understand why, like NOS and Fast and the Furious. Anyway, I didn't make that connection at the moment. But but uh, adrenaline is like the NOS in your car. NOS, nitrous oxide, it's not supposed to be the fuel that is used to power your car on a regular basis. Otherwise, you're going to blow your engine. Mm. It's it just meant to be something 
that gives you a quick boost when you need it. Adrenaline is like that. You sh- your brain is not designed to run on high adrenaline all the time, even though you feel great when you have high adrenaline. Now, when, I, when I have high adrenaline, I, I feel on top of the world. However, when I'm under high adrenaline situation for too long, I will feel like total crap the next day. The reason is that the adrenergic receptors, the, the beta adrenergic receptors, the receptors triggered, activated by adrenaline, they are super sensitive and they can be down-regulated very easily because the body protects yourself against yourself. When you get overactivated, it's dangerous from a, a heart perspective, from a kidney perspective, from like many, many, many bad things can happen, excess cortisol, high blood pressure, high heart rate. So when the body feels overly excited, it will protect itself by desensitizing the adrenergic receptors. So it's not a matter of, oh, I want high adrenaline. No, you want high adrenaline at the right time, mm. but you don't want to be high all the time. Yet dopamine is great because it makes you feel awesome. But if you increase it too much, you will increase cortisol and adrenaline because it will uh, outweigh serotonin. Uh, Having high GABA is important and having high glutamate is a bad thing. But if you have low glutamate, I'm going to increase my GABA a ton. I'm going to decrease glutamate as much as possible. I don't want mood swings. Glutamate in excess is neurotoxic. But if glutamate is too low, problems with concentration, problems with memory, zero empathy. The only people with, z- with, with no glutamate are sociopaths. Sociopaths are character- characterized by very high dopamine sensitivity and extremely low glutamate. They have zero empathy and they, and they don't care about other people. They don't care about other people's feelings. They have very little feeling themselves. So it's not just a matter of saying, well, your glutamate is bad. I want to bring it down as much as possible. GABA, serotonin are great. I want to get them up as much as possible. Here's the thing. If GABA and serotonin are too high, it's going to be super hard for you to get motivated because your brain is going to, always going to be on off. I have a story about that. I'm training a member of the national bobsleigh team. Uh, now, the, the story happened a few months back around November. And that was two weeks before the training camp where uh, the slots were awarded. Like, was he going to be on the first team, second team, third team, or backup? It was all about physical testing. So he needed to have a really good performance. Now, this athlete, for what, over the past year, never ran slower than a 3.8130 meter, okay? that, which is decently fast for a guy uh, of 105 kilos. Now, two weeks before the test, he went on a weekend vacation with his girlfriend, came back on a Monday and he called me up in panic. Chris, Chris, I just ran a three, nine, five. For those who know speed, that's like five meters slower than his slowest pace of the year. And he panicked because at three, nine, five, he doesn't even make it, make the cut to be a backup in the national team. So I asked him, well, how did you feel? I said, well, my muscles felt really flat. So my first reaction was, did you have enough carbs? Because my, my instinct was like flat muscle depleted glycogen. He said, dude, I ate all the carbs. Like I went to town, like I had cake and all that stuff. So obviously not glycogen depletion. So I asked him, well, well how exactly did you feel? Well, my muscle felt soft. I couldn't contract them properly. 
and I couldn't get motivated for my training. Ah, okay. So to me, that's not glycogen depletion. Low muscle tone. Okay, you have to understand what muscle tone is. Muscle tone is a partial neurological activation of the muscles. The nervous system keeps the muscle partially activated even at rest. That creates muscle tone. Now, if you have low muscle tone, it means your nervous system is inhibited. It's relaxed. If you have excessive muscle tone, it's because your nervous system is amped up too much. That's why a lot of people choke under pressure because their muscles become tight and it completely changes their technique. Now, he showed up in the morning with low muscle tone. That tells me his nervous system was not amped up. It was impossible for him to get his nervous system activated enough to perform. Why? Because he went to town, had shit ton of carbohydrates, didn't train all weekend, so his dopamine stayed low and his serotonin increased a lot and it was already high. Now it was so high that he just couldn't get motivated for his training. So it's not a matter of increasing everything as much as possible. It's all about balance. And depending on your natural brain chemistry, you will need to increase some neurotransmitters. You might need to decrease some to optimize yourself. So if you are a type one, a type one, very confident, very driven, uh, very competitive, these people are dopamine sensitive. So to become the best version of themselves, they need to increase dopamine. They also have high levels of inhibitors naturally, either high GABA, high serotonin, or a mix of both, which means that they are often seen as lazy. A lot of times you think of a sprinter. The sprinter comes into a gym, he talks a lot, he, he jokes around. You say both. Maybe it, it takes like 20 minutes just to get into a zone, right? Because he needs to increase dopamine enough to counterbalance, well, increase neural activation to, to be able to overcome the natural inhibition. They are no, normally very cool under pressure, but it's hard for, for them to get amped up. So when you have a type 1A, any meal consumed prior to working out should should be zero carbs or the least amount of carbs possible, only proteins and fat to favor dopamine and try to decrease serotonin so it's going to be easier for them to get amped up. Now, that's why Charles Poliquin uh, recommended the meat and nuts breakfast. Charles is a 1A, was a 1A. So for him, the meat and nut breakfast gave him that raw material to produce dopamine, but also increase acetylcholine. Uh, because of nuts, because of the beef, which helped them because a 1A has low acetylcholine and needs it. So, so a 1A, 1B, all the meals prior to training should be proteins and fats. And then afterwards, depending on, on the time of day, uh, you might want to stay proteins and fats if your training was earlier, or you might want to go uh, protein and carbs if the training was later to shut your brain down, allowing you to relax. Um, if you're someone who has low serotonin and type three, more introverted, uh, more stressed, then you want to have carbs at every meal. Not a large amount, not high glycemic carbs, but you want a small amount of carbs at every meal to maintain, to, to increase serotonin, decreasing cortisol, uh, allowing you to reduce anxiety. That's fairly important. Uh, people with the type 2Bs, type 2Bs, they need to decrease glutamate. So they could have a keto intervention for four to six weeks. And after that, they can switch to a, a targeted ketogenic diet. So keto diet, except for around the workout, which would include carbs. 
to decrease cortisol, allow them to get a better pump, and allow them to recover after the session. Uh, or if they want to gain more muscle, after the keto intervention, when glutamate is, is lower, they can have carbs, but they need to be low glycemic to avoid hyperglycemia, which will increase glutamate production. So, so it's a lot more complex than just saying, uh, I, I, I'm going to have a little bit of everything. It's the, because you cannot increase serotonin and dopamine at the same time. You will always favor one over the other. You cannot increase GABA uh, and glutamate at the same time. You need to decrease one to increase the other. Uh, the only one I would actually recommend trying to maximize uh, is acetylcholine because acetylcholine will, will improve the efficacy of all the other neurotransmitters by speeding up transmission of information in your brain. So acetylcholine makes every other neurotransmitter more effective and it protects all the other neurotransmitters. Now, acetylcholine, of course, if you want to increase it, you would go with foods rich in choline, like fatty fish, chicken, pork, eggs, uh, especially eggs, beef, shellfish, beans, broccoli, all that has a high amount of choline. So if you have the more, more of the raw material, you're going to produce it more. You also want food. Okay, vitamin B6 is important for pretty much the production of all the neurotransmitters. So if you're if, uh, deficient in vitamin B6, no neurotransmitter system is going to be effective. That's that's incredible. So I love eggs. <laughs> I love all the well, things you've just said, and I have tons of them. So I'm a 1A. Um, yeah. In terms of what I've been doing, you can tell me whether this is right or not. Um, after listening to your advice, reading a couple of things, I have taken the carbs out of my morning meal. So yeah. normally, yeah. I just have a shake, protein shake, but I put some honey in previously. I've mm -hmm. taken the honey out. Uh, I put mm -hmm. some more fats in, some butter, some coconut oil. So it's kind of like that kind of fat coffee type vibe. Mm -hmm. And I seem to work perfectly. I train first yeah. thing in the morning. Yeah. As far as I know, I think my performance is pretty good and I continue to improve and continue to have progressive overload. I supplement now with tyrosine and alpha GPC. And nice. I have loads of choline through the foods that you've just described. Mm -hmm. The I love carbs, but I would say I have relatively low carbs, probably under 200 grams per day. Mm -hmm. And it's a feel good factor. It's not necessarily yeah. for performance, it's for me to just enjoy my meal. And it's typically yeah. later in the day, but that's not by design, it just feels in intuitive yeah. to do it that way. Would you look at that and say that's that's a good framework for that's a 1A perfect. or would you change anything? That's perfect, that's perfect. I mean, uh, the, okay, the, the carbs later during the day will, because normally a type 1A and a 1B, but mostly a 1A, they have a hard time relaxing at the end of their day. The, the, the brain is always going, always going, always going. Uh, but in a positive way, not like war, worrying like a, like a type three. It's I want I have this project that that I'm really enthusiastic about. I'm psyched about my workout. I can't wait to train tomorrow. So in, increasing serotonin will help because especially if you increase dopamine throughout the day by having tyrosine, by having proteins and fats. And, then, and since you have a lower serotonin, you're going to increase adrenaline, which is why you're going to have lots of energy during the day, and actually works great by blunting hunger. Because when you have high adrenaline, you're not hungry. So that's going to help you diet down without feeling deprived. However, in the evening, you want to decrease that. So you want to try to increase serotonin, decrease cortisol so you can rest and recover. So definitely for a type 1A in that situation, I would go with the, uh, the, the, the carbs at the end of the day, especially if you're training in the morning. Now, some people could have carbs right after the workout. That can be done, okay? It probably won't shut your brain down too much because it will just calm your brain down from the overactivity. Uh, however, 
that in some people that might actually bring down their CNS too much. So you might, anyway, research have shown that uh, if you take whey protein, for example, right after a workout or whey protein and carbohydrates, uh, the whey protein and carbohydrates does not have a higher rate of protein synthesis. So, so it doesn't help with the anabolic rate. Now, the only reason why you had those carbohydrates post-workout is to increase uh, glycogen store, to replenish glycogen stores. But you, you won't burn that much glycogen from a, a, a lifting workout. So even if you have your carbs later, it's still going to work. Now, if you are dead set on wanting to like, inhibit or decrease the nervous system activation after the workout, you can go with five grams of glycine. Glycine and amino acid is a, a, a bitter in your transmitter. By itself, it calms the brain down, kind of like GABA. But on top of that, it increases level of circulating serotonin. So glycine will decrease cortisol, will increase serotonin, and will shut down the brain. So see if someone wants to relax in the evening and doesn't want to take too many carbs, glycine will help. After a workout, it will help. It won't shut you down so much that you can't function, though. Which it won't make you sluggish. But on top of that, glycine is with leucine, the amino acid that increases mTOR the most. Why is that important? Because mTOR is the light switch that triggers muscle growth. Mm -hmm. So if you want to increase it during the workout, you don't want mTOR to be high all the time because that will speed up cell aging. Uh, but definitely around the workout, you, you want to maximize mTOR to have the greatest response for training. So yeah, for type 1A, 1B, they go uh, no carbs before the workout. Uh, they, and they, as long as they want to stay amped up, as long as they want to stay energized, go low carbs. Go and when they want to relax, then you have your carbs. Your carbs are a tool. The carbs are a tool to help the brain relax. And both physiologically, but also psychologically, if you enjoy carbs, you have them at the end of the day when you can relax enjoy them, then it's going to have the dual effect of having a direct physiological effect by increasing serotonin, decreasing cortisol, decreasing adrenaline, but also giving you a satisfaction. You enjoy your meal more, puts you in a better cool down mindset. So you can actually be active during the day and in the evening you do everything possible to help relax yourself. It is amazing when science matches personal anecdote because everything you've just said, and it hasn't been it hasn't been kind of force fed or, or driven by the things I've heard from you, but my perfect day goes like what you've just said. Intuitively, I stay away from the carbs. I might even fast because I just seem to be more amped up, more switched on. I can be more cognitively sharp. And then I start amping up my food throughout the day, you know, lunch, yeah. and then definitely into dinner. I'm always a big dinner eater. Always have a little bit of dark chocolate in the evening. I feel I need yeah. it. I feel, I feel it makes me happy. And then when I think about it physiologically, I'm like, well, I do need carbs. I just don't necessarily need them in a day. So it's, it's brilliant that science matches the anecdote let me ask you another question about the but well, just, just one thing i'd like to touch because you mentioned uh, fasting okay F fasting uh, can actually be if it will be very effective if you need to be productive during the day because fasting uh, will increase both well it, it will inc fasting increases the conversion of dopamine into noradrenaline now noradrenaline is not like adrenaline, it's, it's the raw material that will be used to produce adrenaline. But noradrenaline is more of a, uh, the neurotransmitter responsible for concentration, focus. Mm. So, so it keeps you focused. A and then you will also increase adrenaline. So during fasting, you will find yourself, once you are 
used to not having foods because most of us eat just because from a habit standpoint. But once you get used to that, well, fasting, when you need to be productive, it will help with concentration by increasing no adrenaline and it will also increase adrenaline so you're going to have more energy. Personally, when I give a presentation, I always fast. I always fast because it makes me more concentrated, more energetic. And then when I need to relax in the evening, then I'm going to have my carbs in the evening. Yeah, and I, I would say that I match that. So cognitively, I see the benefit of yeah. little food during during the morning so I can yeah. just perform best and then I start slowing down as I have lunch. Um, but from a training perspective, there's there, there's there's something either worrisome, there's some anxiety, there's some reason why I feel the need to eat before I train. <laughs> but it's just a protein shake with some fats in there. But that's yeah. enough for me to feel that I've been fueled going in having nothing and then expecting to do like PRs and heavy lifting, heavy strength work, it feels like I'm taking a risk. But well, cognitively, from, from, I'd prefer to fast. Yeah, and, and well, from a, a performance standpoint, there's some merit to that because if activation is a good thing, overactivation is a bad thing because it will increase muscle tightness, which will decrease performance, of course. Uh, also, from a, a gains perspective, I, I agree with you. You need to have amino acids in your body to, to, to be able to maximize the effect of a workout, both by activating mTOR, but also by shuttling building block inside of the muscle that, that you train. And to me, the training session is the only time in your life where you can decide where you're going to send the nutrients you just ate. Because blood is diverted mostly to the working muscles when you're training more of the blood volume is being sent to those working muscles to supply with oxygen and take uh, the, the metabolites uh, out of, of the trained muscle. Now, if that blood is loaded with amino acids because you had amino acids before, protein before, then you're going to shuttle those amino acids inside the, the, the trained muscle at the same time, providing the raw material where they will be needed uh, using the workout itself to send those nutrients in the right place. Yeah, so you're effectively eating and using at the same time versus eating, storing, right. and then changing stuff um, neurochemically. Okay, um, I spoke about my my cut, the successful cut I've had, which will be really, I think, the the framework for losing weight going forward for me personally. Mm -hmm. Which, uh, in a nutshell, was pretty much as as you guys described, which is a, an aggressive, low carb cut. Um, forty yeah. percent calorie deficit, yeah. low carb generally speaking, um, high protein, very high protein, mm -hmm. and doing it for five days a week and for mm -hmm. two of the days, and I split them between the week just so I can have like a basically a three day on, three day, uh, one day off kind of regime, and I would eat at maintenance there where I would load up some more carbs, I'd, I'd have a ton more calories. It would bring all the kind of feel good factors back because uh, mm -hmm. it can be quite depressing having yeah. uh, so few food. And that not only worked perfectly, I, I think I sent you the graph, the graph was just mm. magic in terms yeah. of my weight loss and all the parameters changed according to plan. I, yeah. I lose very little muscle, uh, my performance stayed um, consistent, I wouldn't say I was slamming the PRs, but um, I was definitely keeping my volume up, irrespective. Mm -hmm. uh, I looked forward to those kind of cheat days or those maintenance days. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I lost the weight on time and it felt great. I, I know it would be wrong of me to suggest that everyone should do an aggressive mm. dieting strategy, very low carb with maintenance uh, feeds. 
why why in your mind would it be bad advice to suggest everyone do that for example because i've seen well, it work for me for example well first of all you can you didn't lose muscle uh because you even if you try you if you if you keep training you won't lose any muscle in such a short period of time. It, it, it's it, unless you do something completely stupid. It's it's not possible. The fact that your performance was maintained indicates that. Now, uh, you might you will lose water weight, and water yeah. is part of the lean body mass, so that can give you the illusion that you're losing muscle, but you didn't. Also, if your performance strength wise was maintained. To me, it probably means your muscles got slightly stronger. The reason why people lose strength when they're dieting down, uh, at first, well, if you diet if you diet down for 16 weeks, the, the, the strength you lose at the end is an indication of muscle loss. But the strength that is lost during a quick fat loss phase, especially when the calories are so low, uh, it's mostly due to decrease in both water weight, e e either uh, intramuscular water weight, or subcutaneous water weight and intramuscular triglyceride and glycogen. What happens is when you are holding lots of water, glycogen, and fatty acids inside your muscle, it actually creates more pressure and it can pack the joint. Mm -hmm. That is especially true for the shoulder joint. So if all the muscles surrounding the shoulder joint are suddenly quote unquote smaller because they retain less water, less glycogen, less fatty acids, there will be less of a compression effect on the joint itself. And that compression actually creates stability. So now you find yourself with less stability because of the decrease in water weight in glycogen storage and, free, and intramuscular fatty acids, but you still have less stability. Now, <laughs> when you're less stable, the body feels less safe. Mm -hmm. handling big weights. So it will tend to inhibit force production. So you feel you're getting weaker, the loads are feeling heavier in your joints. That's not because your muscles are weaker, that's because you have less joint stability. And normally the pressing exercises will be affected a lot more. So the bench press, overhead press have the greatest negative impact. The squat, will have a moderate negative impact and the deadlift and pulling exercise almost zero. Uh, so it's really a matter of the, the, the exercises with the most uh, unstable joint involved, like the shoulder joint and, and during movement that creates pressure on those joints, like pressing movement that are the most affected. Oftentimes, that, is, that, is, that is incredible because I injured my AC joint. I injured my shoulder mm -hmm. capsule basically mm -hmm. whilst I was cutting. And I'm still yeah, recovering yeah. from that. That is that just blew my mind. That that insight, that foresight of how your body's going to respond. I was trying to lift heavy. I kept my loads heavy. Yeah. My form probably broke down a little bit. I definitely felt less stable. And yeah, and I just put too much pressure on you know the front part of my shoulder. And yeah, I'm still kind of rehabbing that back out. But wow, that's... and it's instinctive because you, 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 in your mind, if I maintain my strength, I'm not losing muscle. But, but you need to understand that as much as a 5 to 10% decrease in pressing strength while dieting down is normal. You didn't lose any muscle. So you can actually keep like pushing the pulling exercises hard, like chin-ups, rows. You, you can try to keep maintaining your strength. On, on deadlift, you can try to maintain your strength or even increase it. Uh, and on squatting, you, you should be more conservative. 
any exercises that needs more stability than you need more, more conservative. Even if you're using 10% less weight, you're not losing muscle. You will naturally be weaker in those movements. Oftentimes, you're going to have someone, that if they do like triceps extension, if they do pec decks, if they do lateral raises, they, they, they stay the same strength. In fact, they might like actually be, be, be stronger. Yet, when they bench press, the strength goes down. The, the individual muscles are all the same strength. Why would the compound lift be weaker? The only explanation is an inhibition due to lack of stability. And I, I can give you an example. A few years back, I was bench pressing twice a week on Wednesday and Saturday. And that's when I was doing my heaviest bench press. I was bench pressing 200 kilos. And um, on Wednesday, I hit 195 for double. On Friday evening, my wife and I, have, uh, and I had a, a long jacuzzi, a hot bath. But nothing crazy. We didn't we didn't drink. We didn't do drugs. We didn't even have sex. So it was a really boring night. Mm-hmm. But we stayed there for like two hours, and I went straight to bed afterwards. The next day on Saturday, I felt great, felt, felt relaxed. I failed with 160 on a bench press, which is like 30 kilos less than I hit for a double on Wednesday. The reason was that my body was completely dehydrated. I felt great, but the joints were a lot less stable simply because of the dehydration. That dehydration also changed the pination angle of the muscle, which gave me a worse leverage when it comes to force production. So dehydration uh, or loss in water weight, loss of glycogen, loss of intramuscular fatty acid can create a big, big decrease in, in quote unquote lifting strength, but that doesn't mean the muscles are weaker. Fantastic. That is just yeah, another mind-blowing um, piece of information that I'm going to be taking at straight away. Um just as we try and close on this discussion, because I've had mm-hmm. you on this on this mic for a long time already, um, I wanted to just give some respect to the other types at a high level. So yeah. we kind of picked picked apart the the kind of neurotransmitters and and how they're inhibited or, or um, the volume of, of such is increased by having certain foods. We spoke about tryptophan, tyrosine, taurine. Mm-hmm. Um, as we think about performance and cutting they're not ne- they don't necessarily go hand in hand right if you want to perform amazingly well in the gym and you know at work you might want to eat a certain way if you're cutting you might have to accept that some of those things are, are going to be less than optimal mm-hmm. but if we think about the other neurotypes and pick pick perhaps the the, the second most dominant one to just mm-hmm. give us another example what would be your performance strategy and what would be your cutting strategy so maybe a 2a or a 2b which which would you prefer to talk about we look at the two but the 2a is simple because the 2a everything works because they they have a moderate amount of everything so it really depends on their their, the state at the moment and the type of training they're doing like if i'm a type 2a and i'm training for performance i might actually go uh, low carbs every meal before the workout and then higher carbs after the workout if i want to uh to cut as a 2a it's going to be the same strategy, but the amount of carbs will be much lower. Now, uh, a type 2B is more interesting because a type 2B needs to lower glutamate because as long as you have high glutamate, then you're going to have a hard time sticking to a diet. That's why a lot of people go on a keto diet and they feel, oh, my, my cravings stop. Yeah, because glutamate gave you those cravings because they amplify the pleasure response from the cheat foods you like. So what, what I'm, let, 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 if I'm working with a type 2B, and it's funny because I had an uh, online training group recently and some people reported like 
fantastic result. Like I'm, I'm one, one guy lost uh, 26 pounds, so like 12 kilos in, in 12 weeks, which is good. But more impressive is squatting strength and his deadlift strength increase by over 40 kilos each, which was crazy. Wow. Now, the strategy we used was at first we wanted to decrease glutamate. Decrease glutamate, so that's going to make the whole dieting process a lot easier, the training process a lot easier. So we, we, the first phase, we, were, we had two goals. First, decrease glutamate and also increase your body's reliance on fat for fuel. So we went keto. Keto will decrease glutamate in, by increasing the conversion of glutamate into GABA, which will decrease anxiety, decrease stress for in a type 2B anyway, will also decrease cortisol, make them feel better, better mindset get the, the, the cravings away. Now, that worked great. Then afterwards, the second phase, we went targeted keto. So we had keto-like diet for the whole week, but around the workout, we had uh, as high as 100 grams of carbs depending on the day. Uh, on the non-training days, they had no carbs. So, so they, they, uh, they were probably not keto at that point because we reintroduced carbs, but their body was still keep using mostly fat for fuel. But more importantly, they, 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 their glutamate level was low, so when they had those carbs, they didn't have the, the, the cravings reappear. And then in, during the last phase, we, we increased carbs, so we had uh, uh, up to 200, 250 grams of carbs, but mostly around the workout and in the evening. So basically, as the diet progressed, we added more and more and more carbs. Now, calories kept going down from phase to phase, but protein stayed similar uh, and Carbohydrates gradually increased while fast decreased during the phase. So at the end, they were consuming less calories. But because they had more carbs, the process was super easy. But that works mostly for the type 2Bs because first you need to fix the glutamate issue while also improving your capacity to use fat for fuel. And then when the body is fat adapted, which take, can take six weeks in some people, not four, then you can gradually reintroduce carbs. Now, the, the type of training and the type of energy systems work was also adapted to, to the phase. So at first, my goal was to program the body to use fat for fuel. So I wanted to avoid activities that relied mostly on glycogen for fuel. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to lifting, we actually went strength work. Anyway, at that point, they only dieted on for four weeks, so they didn't lose strength yet. So it was mostly heavier stuff. Uh, so we didn't want to go into the glycolytic, uh, glycolysis zone. So we didn't want to have sets lasting more than 20, 25 seconds. So you didn't rely on, on, on glycogen for fuel. You kept with the phosphagen. And cardio-wise, we, we went with steady-state cardio just to increase the enzymes responsible for uh, mobilizing fat for fuel. In the second phase, we, we kept the, the, the steady-state cardio we added one interval sessions per week just to gradually increase caloric expenditure. And the lifting became half performance and half bodybuilding because now we had a bit more carbs. And in the last phase, it was all bodybuilding work and mostly intervals. So, so, and because they had higher carbs, it was fairly easy to do those workouts and still get a great pump being able to handle the higher volume. So it's really is a matter of, of match first use deciding what you're going to be doing diet wise, depending on the brain chemistry, then using the best training to go along with that diet. Brilliant. Brilliant. I, I know many two B's and I just think that as a, as a strategy, 
could be successful mm. for many people that I know. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I might consider phasing my nutrition with my my training because I haven't really done that uh, mm. today. Not not because I I, I identify with a two B, but just because it makes sense uh, to ma match your make your glycogen with your performance, right? Yeah. For, for 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 a guy like you, it's very simple. You, you protein and fats to perform, uh, protein and carbs to relax and recover from volume work. So if you go low volume, you don't need carbs, uh, unless it's in the evening to recover, to, to uh, calm the brain down. So the amount of carbs, you, you will always have a certain amount in the evening to help you unwind from your day. But besides that, maybe that, that's like 100 grams. Besides that 100 grams, you can add anywhere between 50 to 150, depending on the type of workout you're doing on that day. Got it, got it. Um, is there anything else you wanted to impart to the audience before we close on this call, Christian? Well, that, that, that's that's pretty complete, I think, in terms of nutrition. We didn't even cover supplementation, which <laughs> is at least an hour and a half again, so we're gonna yeah. have to set up a third one. Yeah, no, no, let's definitely do that, let's definitely do that. But no, thank you so much for that insight. I know we hadn't gone through each very specifically bullet by bullet, but I think with a one pass, maybe two passes on this, I think there's, mm -hmm there's pretty much everything you need to know from a nutrition perspective through this, especially when you combine it with the first episode to really identify your neurotype. Christian, I really appreciate today. Fantastic okay. as always. Tell the audience if there's anything they need to know of, and I'm going to kind of lead the witness a little bit here. I know you've got some kind of neurotype testing service. So maybe you can talk about that briefly. And then if there's any seminars or anything that's kind of relevant and, um, recent that people should be aware of? Well, on, on tibarmy.com, I do have the uh, online questionnaire that, that people can use to get a better idea of what their neurotype is. So it's a hundred questions. It's a, it's like a, I would say similar to a psychological assessment. I'm not a psychologist, so I can't claim it. Well, although my, my father did participate creating the test and he's a psychologist. But anyway, it's a, it's a personality assessment that can give you clues about what your, neuro, your neurotype is. Uh, I'm also just, I, I just finished filming uh, uh, a new uh, online course for neurotyping. There is one right now on my website. Oddly enough, I'm going to tell you don't buy it, which is probably the first time ever because I just finished filming a new evolution to the neurotyping system, which is now in three parts. So you have the part one, which will be uh, the science behind it. Part two is the training and assessment. And part three it will be the nutrition and supplementation. And it's uh, two, uh, two hours and a half, three hours each. Uh, I would wait a few months, well, maybe a month and a half before uh, it's been edited and available. It's going to be uh, uh, announced anyway. Uh, and if you want to learn more about the system, then, then, then you should definitely get those course. As far as seminars are concerned, I, I will be in Australia at the end of May and beginning of June. Uh, two seminars in Sydney, two seminars in Melbourne. One seminar on neurotyping, one on hypertrophy and performance training at both places. I'm also going to be in, uh, in in Switzerland. I'm going to be specifically in um, in Zurich uh, on the first weekend of June to give a course on neurotyping system. So uh, these are my my most uh, the, my closest one. Of course, I have seminars uh, until uh, October planned so far, but uh, the I don't have enough memory. That's probably lack of acetylcholine to be able to remind, remember all of them. <laughs> and is there just that 12-week um, program mm -hmm. that you put that individual through, that 2B individual, yeah. if yeah. people wanted to leverage 
your services or, mm. or try and try and get some coaching as to how they structure and phase mm. their training and nutrition. Do yep. you offer that for everyday yep. people or is it mainly for yep. athletes or, or personal trainers? Well, I, 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 we have online coaching services. I, when I say we, it's because I have a, a, a team. Well, basically, we are three people handling the online services. We have uh, Stefan. Steph is, has been working with me for 13 years. He, he knows just as much as I do on your typing system. In fact, with nutrition and supplementation, he is way smarter than I am, way smarter than I am. And the, uh, the second guy is... Uh, JP. JP has also been working for me for a while and he is more of a performance guy. So when people are asking for performance training, oftentimes they will be working with him now. Uh, I, I oversee everything, uh, but if we have like 200 online clients, I can't do two online clients by myself with my, my seminar schedule, but it, it, uh, it's just as good as if I was doing it myself. Uh, so on the website, you can have online coaching. I also have uh, phone consultation for if people just want help designing their own program. I also offer that. So it's all on tibarmi.com, either online coaching or consults. Fantastic. I'm going to make sure I link to all of those assets. Again, thank you, thank you so much, Christian. I hope you enjoy the next few weeks. And um, I hope that, that your trip to Melbourne and Sydney is fun with the little one. I'm sure it will be. Hopefully. Hopefully. Cool. All right, man. Until next time. Take care, thank man. You, man. See, guys, I told you that wouldn't disappoint. Christian is the nuts. He is incredible. And look, I've listened to this episode back twice already. I'll probably do it a third time because the knowledge on here needs to soak in. Now, I hope you enjoyed it. And if you've got any questions at all or feedback, you can get through to me on Adaptation, either it be on Adaptation Facebook page or the Instagram feed. If you've got questions specifically to Christian, you can funnel them through to us as well. I'll make sure he gets them. So that just leaves me to say Adaptation is all about providing you with the tools and expert knowledge to help you improve and optimize your strength, health, and mindset inside and out. Until next time, guys, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might also enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. This is Adapt Nation.